Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that, well, as we've just heard, it is uh, a solid and true word, trustworthy and true. We thank you as well that it is the word uh, not of men, but the word of the living God, our King. And so we pray, Father, that you would humble us now. Uh, we thank you that by this word you draw our hearts back to you. Uh, draw our hearts back from double-mindedness. Draw our hearts back from half-heartedness. Draw our hearts back from other loves. And so we pray, Father, that you would do that gracious work again by your word this day. We ask this for your glory and for our good. Amen. Let me ask you the question that really has been uh, at the forefront of this short series in 1 Kings. Are you single-minded? Are you single-minded? That's the question of 1 Kings 18, and we're looking at the second half of 1 Kings 18 together from verse 16 together. Are you single-minded in life? What is your one great passion? I suspect for many of us, uh, the experience of being double-minded in life, is uh, being indecisive, is a pretty common experience. Uh, we experience it uh, about the little details of our lives, uh, from uh, what to buy or what to, wh where to go on a particular day uh, to the big decisions of life as well. Indecisiveness uh, marks much of our experience. And I suspect this, this feeling of being indecisive comes down in the end to, well, everything in my mind comes down to economics. Here's the economic concept that I think is behind it, and that is uh, opportunity cost. Uh, whatever decisions we make, we know there's an opportunity cost. If, if I go this way, what am I going to miss out on? Uh, is what I'm doing as I make this decision so good that it's worth missing out on what I would gain by going in a different direction? That, that's the sort of trap that uh, opportunity cost can, can uh, lead us into, that we get stuck in indecision. We get stuck in double-mindedness. And 1 Kings 18 is showing us people who are doing that, not with small things, but they're doing it with their relationship with the Lord. They're doing it with whether they follow the Lord or whether they follow with their heart other things. And in this chapter, in the second half that we're looking at together this morning, we have the Lord call upon his people, make up your mind. Uh, let's have a look together, uh, starting at verse 17. You'll, uh, if you were here in the last couple of weeks as we've looked at this together, you'll know that this is the moment um, we've been leading up to was Obadiah, uh, the servant of King Ahab, but also a follower of the Lord, tells King Ahab that Elijah, the prophet of God, is coming to meet him. Now, King Ahab has been looking for uh, Elijah everywhere, so he's desperate for this, this encounter, and Ahab goes to meet Elijah. I mean, can you imagine this scene as the two of them uh, line up to see each other again? The king is going to meet the man that he is convinced is responsible for shutting up the sky and providing no rain on the land for some three years. Three years of no rain, three years of absolutely no prosperity, three years of Baal proving completely useless as a god. And I imagine for King Ahab in Israel that uh, if there was an election for uh, the role of king, that his polling numbers at this point would be looking quite grim after three years of this. And so when Ahab finally comes face to face with Elijah, he is steaming mad. You see what he says there? Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Look around, Elijah. Look at what's become of this land. Uh, this is all your fault, Elijah. You see Elijah's response, verse 18. No, king, this is all on you. Verse 18, Elijah says to him, uh, the root cause of the troubles facing Israel is you and your 
forefathers, Ahab and those who have come before him, have uh, sequentially abandoned the Lord and instead now follow Baal. And this is the result, this desperate situation on the land. Yahweh has already proved to them over these three years that he, not Baal, is responsible for the provision of rain on the land, that he, not Baal, is God. He's done that by shutting up the sky. And you would have thought that after three years, it would be obvious what the answer is. But perhaps it was all too subtle for King Ahab. Perhaps it was all too subtle for Israel. And so now is the time for Yahweh to put pretenders to his throne in their place. And so really what we have in front of us in this latter half of chapter 18 is the title fight between Yahweh and Baal. This is what we've been leading up to. And Elijah doesn't just want King Ahab to see this fight. He wants all Israel to see it. If they're going to make a decision uh, between trusting with all of their heart the Lord or trusting with all of their heart Baal, they need to know the facts. And so he wants them to see it. And so all of the people, we're told, are summoned up onto Mount Carmel, uh, along with the prophets of Baal. Remember, there's one prophet of Yahweh, Elijah, and there's prophets of Baal. How many of them? There's 450 of them. It's quite a career uh, being a prophet of Baal. Mount Carmel is the place for this gathering. It's the showdown, Baal v. Yahweh. That's the title fight. And then verse 21, Elijah goes before the people and he says this. How long will you waver between two opinions? There's that double-mindedness. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him with your heart. But if Baal is God, follow him. Make up your mind, says God. And the Hebrew word for double-mindedness here is, is our word for limping. How long are you going to limp through life with this sort of indecision? Uh, you, you've got to make up your mind. You're living life like someone trying to run in a three-legged race. It doesn't work. God says, time to choose. You see the people's response? Nothing. No response. No decision. They're masters at it by now. Masters at fence-sitting, as painful as an exercise as that is. Uh, but seeing this, indecision is their decision. If Yahweh is God, he is to be followed with all your heart. There's no in-between. Uh, there's no shades in-between. Either Yahweh is God or he's not. I reckon it's easy to be that way with the Lord, limping along in partial trust, but trusting other things just as much, splitting our securities and our hopes and our loves amongst other things. But it is, well, the three-legged race. It's not a viable way forward. Elijah wasn't asking Israel in verse 21 uh, to decide whether Baal or Yahweh is God and then just go back to normal life. And as we read this passage, we, we are not in that uh, situation either. We can't just say, yes, it turns out that the Lord is God. Uh, right, good. Now I've decided that. Let's go back to normal life and go about my plans. No, if Yahweh is God, follow him, says Elijah. How easy it is to be indecisive. How easy it is to split our loves and our securities and our hopes. Uh, let me give you an example of uh, this double-mindedness that, that I've seen creep up on me even uh, in recent years as a parent. This is an example for uh, parents and grandparents, and indeed it's an example for children and youth within our church family. Uh, it's something I've observed in my own life and in the lives of other Christians around me. Uh, as Christian parents, 
and I'm the parent of uh, four children, uh, we're convinced that the greatest thing we could offer our kids over time is an ongoing saving relationship with Jesus. Of all the things we could provide for them, of all the things that we could offer them, that is, that is the number one, a saving relationship, ongoing saving relationship with Jesus. But alongside that, as we raise them, we want them to have every opportunity we want them to experience every activity under the sun. We want them to know what this world is like and all the different options that are there for them. And so uh, over time, uh, we get into a system where we give them, well, hours and hours of these experiences, hours and hours of tutoring to help with uh, academic uh, success, sporting experiences, if that's their thing, community groups, music lessons, basket weaving, debating, coding, you name it, we, we provide it for them because we're sure it's our job to make sure that they reach their absolute potential. Now, we know along the way that uh, being gathered with God's people at, at church or at youth group or kids' church, whatever it may be, of course that's important for their formation and that big goal we have of that relationship with Jesus for them. But as the years go on and as they get older, more and more things compete with that. And you start to see the three-legged race appear. Uh, you can't go to youth group this term because that's when your sport is on. Or that's when debating is on or coding or uh, that family event we go to. You can't make Sunday mornings because that, that part-time job you've got, you've got a shift this morning or you've got basket weaving or drama group or whatever it may be. We want them to have it all. That's what's all around us. So we, we don't want them to miss out. We want to broaden their horizons because there's more to life than just youth group or Sunday church. The world is bigger than that. We don't want them to be frustrated by, by us restricting them and uh, making them feel that this is what uh, we want them to do. Uh, that they might get the wrong idea about God. Our heads know that them grasping and then hanging on to hope that is theirs in Jesus is the absolute best thing for them. But our actions say, you know what? It's just one priority among many. They already know that God loves them. They already know who Jesus is and what he has done for them. That's covered. They're not going to forget it, surely. They just need to know that there's more to life than this. That's the pressure. That's the temptation on parents and grandparents and children and youth. Well, here's the truth. Truth is, our children can nail the HSC. They can excel at university if they go there. They can conquer the sporting world or the business world or the arts world or whatever it may be. They can be well-liked. They can be well-regarded. They can be kind and compassionate human beings. They can be happily married. They can have healthy children. They can live to a ripe old age and have a great retirement. They can even have the holiday house. They can, they can have all of this and absolutely blow life. They can have it all and yet totally miss the point of life completely. Gain the whole world and yet lose what their soul was made for. Elijah says, either Yahweh is God and you follow him as first in your heart or all of this is and you follow it with your heart. I reckon a good way to consider uh, how uh, our thinking is going with that as parents is to ask, what do you pray for your children? Do you pray that they be happy? That's a good prayer. Healthy? Yes. Do you pray that they be wealthy? Well, perhaps not out loud. Do you pray that they would know and follow Jesus as their one great passion? Do you pray that they will lay down their life for him, that they will follow him on that path to Jerusalem, on that path to the cross? 
The shift for our children and youth and even for us as adults from wholehearted following of the Lord Jesus to some sort of dull grey nominal faith is a journey of thousands of little decisions. And some will say that over time you realise that that passionate single-mindedness of youth is, well, that's just a thing of youth. That to stay that way as an adult is to fail to see the complexities and compromises required to live in the adult world, the real world. To which I want to say humbly, but heartily, codswallop. To be double-minded is to be half-hearted. A tragedy is seeing passionate youth become lukewarm adults. Will you pray for the children of our church family, the youth of our church family, to keep following the Lord with all of their heart? Will you pray that we as adults, whether we're parents or not, will show them what that looks like in adult life? Now back to our title fight. Have a look at verse 22. We're up on Mount Carmel and first the facts of the fight. Elijah is a lone representative of Yahweh and Baal has some 450 prophets on his side. It's like Yahweh has picked a fight despite being hugely outnumbered because he knows that his power and worthiness has absolutely nothing to do with how many cheerleaders he has. And then we have the rules of the fight. You see them there, verse 23 and 24. Get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and place it on the wood, but don't set fire to it. And I'll do the same. This is Elijah. I'll prepare the other bull. I'll put it on the wood and I won't set fire to it either. And then verse 24. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. The people agree. Uh, Elijah lets the Baalists go first. You see that? They select their bull. They cut it into pieces. They lay it on the wood. And and the prophets of Baal, they begin to call upon Baal. We're we're told they shout from morning till noon. No response. No one answered. And so we're told that they dance a little jig. Maybe what Baal needs is just a bit more enthusiasm. It's a ridiculous scene. The Bible wants us to see how ridiculous it is. Uh, You've heard of dancing with the stars. This is dancing with the prophets. And so Elijah begins to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Uh, Perhaps he's deep in thought. Or maybe he's busy or traveling, perhaps. Maybe he's sleeping and needs to be awakened. And this word busy literally means maybe he's on the loo. Shout louder, says Elijah, mocking the the prophets of Baal. And do you see the prophets' response? Uh, You know, that just might work. And so they give it a go. They are ridiculous. And things get even more so. It continues all the way to evening. And we're told, though, that there's no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Do you know why? There's no one there. Baal does not exist. The reality is we put our weight of hope into things in this world that can't possibly hold the weight. They are not God. They are not meant to hold our trust. The prophets here are like so much in our world, full of sound and fury and signifying in the end absolutely nothing. And now Elijah takes his turn. Verse 30. In the midst of this crazy commotion, as they, uh, the prophets of Baal danced their jigs and uh, slashed themselves with knives, Yahweh's altar that Elijah had built has been uh, decimated, it's destroyed. And so Elijah has to rebuild it. And uh, we're told here he picks up 12 stones, one for each tribe of Israel, and he makes them into an altar in the name of the Lord. Uh, don't miss the symbolism here. Do you see what Elijah is doing? Uh, 
Ahab and his forefathers have dismantled Israel as those who follow the Lord. That, that, that's broken down completely. And, and so now symbolically, Elijah is rebuilding Israel on the Lord. Elijah arranges the wood, the bull on the altar, and then digs a deep trench around it. And then he gets them to pour copious amounts of water uh, over everything. And then he says, let's do it again. And, and then again, so much water that the huge trench he's built is filled with water. Everything is soaked. It's like, again, Elijah is stacking the fight against Yahweh. Uh, it's like he's holding one hand behind uh, Yahweh's back in this title fight so that no one will doubt the Lord's power. Elijah steps forward to pray. And do you see his prayer? He prays to the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel. In other words, he prays to a God who is faithful despite his faithless people. He prays to the only God on Mount Carmel, the only God in Israel, the only God anywhere in this world. He prays to the God whose name must be known. He prays to the God whose heart is for turning his people's heart back to himself. And so in verse 28, verse 38, sorry, we get Yahweh's powerful answer. Do you see it there? He sends down fire upon this altar and absolutely everything is consumed. There's absolutely no doubt about his answer. Yahweh is accepting Elijah's sacrifice. It's, it's the Lord's mighty yes to Elijah's prayer. Please turn the people's hearts back to you. Fire comes down. Uh, as it does often to symbolize this moment in the scriptures. This is the Lord saying right here, right now on this spot, through this man Elijah and this sacrifice, I am offering a way back. I'm turning your hearts back to me on this hill, through this rugged altar. And if you know what God would one day do through his servant, his own son, Jesus, you will see what a big moment this really is on this hill. He's going to do this again. And he won't just do it for Israel. He will do it once and for all of us on a hill called Golgotha, on a rugged cross that Jesus himself was on. His son would not just make a sacrifice. He would be the sacrifice that we might turn our hearts back to him. And let's finish with the final verses. You see the sudden change in verse 40. Elijah commanded them, that's the people, seize the prophets of Baal, and they seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kidron Valley and slaughtered there. Wow, <laughs> that escalated quickly. Why this overreaction? I mean, why does the Lord react this, this, this way? Why, why so, uh, well, dramatic, really? But uh, if we feel that way, and that's how I felt in preparation as I looked at verse 40, and perhaps you're feeling it now, I think this verse condemns not the Lord, but us. When we react that way, I suspect, uh, as we, many of us just have, looking for a way around this, perhaps we just stop at verse 39, it condemns us because we don't see the problem for what it is. This is no flippant act of revenge by the Lord. It is an appropriate judgment that God's law in Deuteronomy 13 calls for when false prophets lead people away from the Lord. We're shocked because we don't think that sin is that serious. We don't think that leading people away from God is that big a deal. But the problem is huge. You know, as I read verse 40 again this week, this is the thing that struck me. Verse 40 is actually first and foremost a warning for, well, people like me who would presume to teach God's people. 
It's a warning declaring to me it's not okay to teach a myth that double-mindedness is okay and normal. It's not okay for me to baptise my own and perhaps anyone else's divided hearts as well, just part of normal North Shore life. My job is to teach us that the glorious truth uh, of the teach us the glorious truth that the Lord is worth our whole heart, our whole soul, our whole life, not all of this. It's a warning that says to me to teach a divided heart gospel, a double-minded gospel, uh, will come with consequences. Now, this is how James chapter three verse one puts it: Not many of you should become teachers my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And not just for teachers, I think this verse is also a warning that's meant to jolt us to say that the choices we make in life, read the path that we follow, following the Lord or following the world, really do matter. And it should not be taught otherwise. It is as the Lord Jesus himself said in Matthew 7, wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life. And what a relief then that the road that our God calls us to follow him down is not paved by our efforts, like worldly paths are. Instead, it is paved by his blood graciously sacrificed for us. It's paved by his mercy. That secures our steps if we would trust him and follow him. And so I want to say as we finish, that becomes the crucial question of all of life, not just for children and youth, but for all of us. If the Lord is God, then do you follow him? And back to the final verses of our story, verse 41, Yahweh is yet to deliver on his promise to bring rain again on the land, but it's on the way. Do you see there, Elijah passionately prays to his God to deliver on this promise, to bring rain again to the land. And Elijah's servant is sent to look out over the sea for signs of rain. He goes seven times and there's nothing. And then, and then finally, there on the horizon, no bigger than a man's hand, is a rain cloud. Gracious rain is coming. Uh, while all this is happening, King Ahab is told to get on his chariot and head for home so he doesn't get caught in the rain. But of course, he does get caught in the rain because it comes on so quickly. And as he's heading on his journey home to Jezreel, where, well, Jezebel waits and the worship of Baal waits. Elijah, we're told, uh, is a dramatic scene. He sort of tucks his cloak in and he goes sprinting ahead of, uh, ahead of uh, King Ahab on his chariot. Uh, it would have been quite a sight. And again, there's much symbolism at play here. Elijah is the Lord's mouthpiece by which God's word guides his people. And now that is happening like the days of old, the king and the prophet working together, the, the word of God leading the king, literally. Here is Ahab's moment of truth. Here is his decision to make. Which path will he choose? Where is his heart? After all he's done to lead Israel away from God, he's being offered a way back still. You can turn your heart back, says God. Make me your one great passion. Can you imagine this crucial but fleeting scene at the end of this chapter? Elijah, uh, you can imagine him bent, doubled over uh, back in Jezreel, heaving for oxygen after this crazy sprint that he does. And, and moments later, Ahab's chariot comes barreling past him and turns down the lane leading back to the palace. And Elijah and Ahab can both see it there in the palace in the, in the queen's quarters. A light is on. 
Ahab has a choice to make. He's been offered gracious forgiveness by the Lord. And, but any moment he's going to stand in the bedroom of the one who currently has his heart. Uh, which will he choose? Uh, to be continued. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that, you, well, your heart is to turn our hearts back to you. You know how double-minded we are. You know how set we get in uh, being well stuck between different decisions, following after different things, not just you, and uh, how that, um, well, messes with our hearts. And so we pray, Father, that give us clarity this day. Help us to follow you with all our heart and all our soul and all our life. Amen.